0: Please take your Bible and open up to the book of Acts, page 932 in those blue Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't own one, please feel free to take that home so that you can own a copy of God's word. And we will pray that the Lord speaks to you through it as he has done for many. We're continuing our study that we've been in for most of this year in the book of Acts and hope to finish by the end of this year. Uh, this morning we're in Acts chapter 23 and 24. We are in following along this section of the book as we trace the actions and travels of the Apostle Paul. As we saw last week, we find Paul now engaged in a trial of his life. And this trial will continue all the way mostly to the end of the book. So we'll be in it for the next few weeks. We'll be covering two more chapters this morning and following the narrative as it unfolds in three big sections, which will be loosely my structure. Three big sections that we follow this morning. First, we will see Paul tried by the Jews. Then watch as he is transported to Felix. And then we'll finish our time seeing how Paul is tried by the Romans, tried by the Jews, transported to Felix and then tried by the Romans. So we open up with Paul on trial and I'm going to start reading in verse 30 of chapter 22 and read through chapter 23, verse 5. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune, the Roman tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know brothers that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So we see there at the end of chapter 22. 22 the Roman tribune over the temple guard, Lysias, has convened this council. Technically, this is not an official government trial. This is sort of a pre-trial hearing where the tribune is trying to figure out the facts of the case against Paul. So far, no one has brought any kind of tangible evidence that will stick against Paul of breaking any Roman law Just the accusation that he has been speaking against the Jewish ways. As the hearing begins, Paul opens with his defense. And it's simple. He says, I've not done anything wrong. He would not say that he was sinless. We see in other places he writes that he considers himself the chief of sinners. But in this particular trial and case, he can find no reason why he should have been arraigned. The chief religious leader, the high priest, obviously sees it differently. He orders that Paul be hit in the face when Paul claims that he is consistently upholding God's law. This is hardly, from the get-go, a fair hearing. And as we heard Derek read earlier from Leviticus 19.15, the way the high priest is going about this trial is not in keeping to God's law. Where he was commanded, you shall do no injustice in court. So Paul, as a response, speaks out words of judgment against the high priest. Who has assumed a position to judge. But lays out rules contrary to the law he claims to uphold. Paul echoes Jesus' indictment from Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, the high priest has friends and colleagues on his side who come to his aid, who rebuke Paul for speaking against the high priest, demanding that some sort of honor be shown to Ananias for his position, even though, as we see in his actions, he's not deserving of it. Aren't you glad that we don't have a high priest who is vindictive and vengeful, but who comes for us to be our sacrifice? To pay what we owe, to take our place. Not Ananias, though. Not Ananias. But Paul, we see, exhibits the kind of humility that comes through our humble Savior. Paul quickly acknowledges whatever mistake it was he made. He does think with the law as a reference point, unlike Ananias. And he realizes that he should have not spoken against a ruler. And so he quickly admits to it and indicates that if he had known, and we don't know why he didn't know, but if he had known, he wouldn't have spoken this way. So far in the hearing, we already see what will become more and more obvious throughout this extended Roman trial. Paul may be the person in the middle of this whole thing that all the activity is focused around. And from a human perspective, he may seem like the one who is on trial. But there is a whole nother court and there is a whole nother judge convened and presiding over these affairs. Divine judge. Heavenly court who sees what really is. Notice how Paul with his clear conscience, with no evidence against him and with insight into the hypocrisy of the council is himself acting like a judge. As he speaks God's word truly. And the council here. Though they would claim to be an authority. And an authority representing God's law. They're actually being indicted. For working against the law of God. Friends as we see the hypocrisy happening here. And people posturing as if they are righteous. But not being righteous. Remember. Secret sins get exposed. God sees everything. Beware the folly of hypocrisy. That promises to you what is real in your heart. Will never be revealed. Cover ups do not cover up anything in the end. Jesus calls us in his grace. To open up to him what is already obvious to him so that he can do something about it so that he can take it and forgive and heal. If there still remains no mention of evidence in this so-called trial, then we might ask the question and we will keep asking the question for the next couple of weeks. Why is this trial continuing <laughs> Don't you need evidence to even make something like this work? Well, it's because of the gospel. It's because of the gospel. Look at chapter 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Some in the group here, the Sadducees by name, denied the resurrection. They held a theological position that it could not have happened and so denied that Christ was the Messiah. But the Pharisees, interestingly, believing that the Old Testament promised hope of resurrection, actually, strangely, take Paul's side here. They believe the scriptures hold out eternal life after death, and so they defend Paul. Shrewdly, Paul sees a way to kind of conquer and divide the room. And we might think he's just playing political games to his advantage, but he's not. He's he's bringing clarity in the midst of a chaotic situation and to a confused group. Paul is, for the sake of all, though he himself is supposed to be on trial and his judges are supposed to be doing this, he provides the clarity needed. He cuts to the heart of the matter. This is not about Jewish laws being broken. This is about whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If the resurrection is true then there are no claims to be made against Paul. There is no reason to oppose Paul for preaching what he had across Asia. If Jesus is alive, then the Old Testament law has been fulfilled as promised. And the Jewish people have their long-awaited Messiah as promised. And Emmanuel, God with us, has come to earth as a new temple where God's people can live with him forever, as God promised. That's what this really is all about. The world may distort as it wants. The conversation about Christianity. And the truth about Jesus Christ. Claiming that it is essentially all just a play at power. By those who would claim Christ. Or they may diminish Christianity. Claiming it is just a religion for the weak and powerless. A crutch for people needing something to rely on. But the truth we carry remains unchanged by the core of public opinion, no matter what that opinion is. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and we can have life in him and in him alone. That's what our lives need to be all about. Dissension breaks out. Over the disagreement about the resurrection in that room. And fearing that Paul will get hurt. The tribune protects him. Another ongoing irony in this story. That the Jews who claim to be protecting God's law. End up threatening God's innocent people. While God uses the Romans who the Jews despise. To protect innocent Paul. What must Paul have been thinking when he went to bed that night after these proceedings? Two consecutive days, two mobs that nearly took his life two times. Well, he doesn't seem to question whether or not he should be here. Maybe he had other questions. In loving support and affirmation, God takes the opportunity to encourage Paul in the middle of his trial. Look at verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I doubt there's any person, weak or afraid as you or I may be, that wouldn't be so helped. To hear the living God speak to us. Take courage. In the chaos of the last two days. God was pursuing his purposes in Paul. He was doing something. By the time this is all said and done. There would be a spokesperson for Jesus the King. Standing and making Christ's saving appeal to the Caesar of Rome. We need this courage to speak to a hostile world about the hope of life and Jesus' death and resurrection. Christians are regularly threatened with verbal and physical violence. Others will receive injustice, imprisonment, even death for their testimony. Some even this week. The boldness we need will not come from within. It will come from God who gives courage. He will assure us when we need it that he is with us and he knows our situation. And he will also remind us that he in his goodness and mercy has employed us in a job that he has for us to do. To witness to his name. No one, though hard they will try, will stop us or hindering us when God has given us a task to be done. All the yelling and the hitting that went on that day. It could do nothing to stop the hand of God working to take the gospel to Rome. Paul could go to sleep and wake up the next day full of courage and confidence that no matter what happened, he was in God's hands. And so can we. And Paul is going to need the Lord's courage. Because another attempt on his life is right around the corner. Which brings us to our second section Transported to Felix. Look at chapter 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. The narrative has been lingering around Jerusalem for a while now. And even with the repeated assurance from Jesus that Paul would go to Rome, it's hard to see how that's going to happen as the Jews keep insisting on settling the matter once and for all on their turf. Unhappy about how the previous night had gone, some religious zealots make a foolish vow to not eat or drink until they've killed Paul. It's funny to think if they actually went through with it after all these things happened and Paul escapes unscathed in a show of even greater hypocrisy. The Jewish council co conspires in the plot to set up an ambush to intercept Paul on his way from the barracks. So much for standing in the place of God's righteous law. The hypocrisy has morphed at this point. Hypocrisy has turned into hatred. Even attempted murder. This is what happens when we decide that we will create our own judicial system for what other people must be and do. And then we claim the place of judge over them. The more they don't match what we want or demand, the the greater our passion to make them submit to our desires becomes. Until finally our frustration evolves into anger and our anger, hatred. And in our hatred, we murder. In our hearts, we think it would be better for this person to be dead. Than for me to have to keep living my unmet, living my unmet demands from them. Living through that. Yes, our hearts can really be that Twisted. My heart can be that twisted. And God hates our hatred of other people. Unlike us, God holds a holy and perfect standard coming from his love for what is good and just. And here is what God says in Proverbs 6:16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him: haughty eyes a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Jesus, the resurrected King who will be coming back to judge each of us says that selfish anger against our brothers and sisters will incur his judgment. Insults we mutter under our breath, he hears. Words we speak out of malice to our loved ones, he marks. God says these acts are to him the same as if you and I raised our hands in murder. How do our hearts get to such a place? Well, we make the decision to begin plotting heart murder long before we would ever engage in a plan to actually kill someone like this mob does. Hate actually begins when we decide we don't like God's ways. That's actually why Cain murdered his brother Abel. Because he didn't like that true worship was about God. And not about the world revolving around himself. God didn't validate Cain God didn't validate his gifts or his efforts, but he instead lovingly told Cain that life is to bring about all we have, bringing it for the purpose of God's praise and and God's use. Are you happy that your life is meant to be organized completely around God's praise and God's use? Are we content with what God has given us, the jobs we have? The incomes, the lifestyle, the people. Could you say that you are genuinely grateful for the things others bring into your life? Or have you, like me, allowed your heart to latch onto envy over what someone else has? Have you, at times, like I have, stored away bitterness against others, keeping a ledger of the ways you don't get what you thought you deserved, refusing to love until you are loved first? Have we effectively committed to hypocritical and hateful lives where we show up on Sunday as Christians on the outside, but in our hearts we blot like murderers in our homes and classrooms and offices throughout the week? Each envious, bitter, and hateful thought that goes unrepented of is like a flame that starts with a flicker that will, if not drenched in humility and confession and forgiveness in Christ's grace, will only consume us and consume others that we try to hold it close to. If you see it in your heart, if you see it in your habits, drop the flame. Confess it. Ask for forgiveness and plead for grace to walk away from our wickedness. Christ, who was hung on a cross by hateful people, offered his life in return for their forgiveness. And he offers the same to us. It's free and it's full. course, not even the most adamantly committed rebel against God's laws can do anything to disrupt God's kingdom. You realize no amount of hate is going to stop him from his commitment to love through the gospel. Resistance in this way is futile. This 40 person mob is illustration of that. You must know that friend, if your plan is to build a kingdom for yourself, let me tell you, as one myself who tried to make my own laws for my life, you cannot find a place on this planet where God doesn't already reign supreme. There is no independent territory to claim where you can exist autonomously. God rules over all, including over the secret plot against Paul. Look at verse 16. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered a letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter. He asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Well, it just so happens that Paul has family in town. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew was in a conversation in which he happened to oversee, overhear the so-called secret plan. And it just so happens that the tribune had given Paul liberties to have visitors come and go and transmit information. And it happens that when this nephew went to talk to the powerful tribune, the tribune gave him an audience. And it just so happens that the tribune was apparently looking for an opportunity to make good on nearly torturing Paul, the Roman citizen. And it just happens that after all this is said and done, Paul is now that much closer to getting a hearing in the presence of Caesar. Kids, when someone can do whatever they want... Even if everyone else wants something different. Do you know what word we use to describe that? Power. Power. If 40 men plotted to kill Paul. And somehow a boy disrupts their secret plan. Who has the power in this story? The one who is doing what he wants. God wants Paul in Rome to testify about Jesus, Acts 23, 11. God's power here shows in his providence. It was not empty comfort then that the Lord offered Paul the night before. It wasn't a weak encouragement to try to be courageous in the face of what was unknown, though God himself had no control over that. No, God had control over all of this. Every bit of information exchanged in the dark, he knew before it was whispered. Every person connected to the situation, including Paul's nephew, God knew. Every step of murderous men, he anticipated. And he told Paul, have courage because I am the God of absolute providence. I exercise control and power over every last detail of every human being he is able to protect us i love how the tribune assigns 470 armed and trained roman troops with horses to counteract the threat of four average, 40 average men if you do the math that's more than 10 to 1 and before the plot can even be acted on paul is already out of town The folly of human pride is that it assumes that there is going to be a grand battle we get to wage against God one day. When man and his supposed power will come out onto the battlefield and like Goliath call out to someone to fight us and the best man will win. If you're counting on that day, it will never come. God will strike you down before you ever get there. What kind of power does man think we have that we think that we could outmaneuver God? Is there a man, ruler, or even nation that could stand on a battlefield against an invisible army of angel hosts and think that we come out alive? If your strategy is winning a war against God, exit that plan now. Make plans to surrender to him instead. Find peace in the end of your hostility. An afflicted Christian who's here this morning, weighed down by cares and concerns and hurts. You may feel like you're fighting a losing battle right now. The trials that mount up around your life are crushing. But take hope, take courage. Do you see how it is that Isaiah the prophet could promise you that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed? When, when Satan accuses and attacks you in your weakness that you are beyond Christ's grace, or you are unlovable, or you should doubt his love for you in the middle of your trial, those temptations by your enemy aim to undercut your ability to see and know and rest that God is in fact in control. So take the truth of the providence of God and wield it as a mighty weapon, the way scripture tells us we can in Isaiah fifty four seventeen, you shall re- every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Under the protection of the guards appointed by the providence of God, Paul is safe. And he is safely transported out of Jerusalem. And once he gets to Caesarea, his Roman trial begins. Our third section, tried by the Romans. This testimony we're about to hear before Felix, the Roman governor that we're about to read, is the first of three like it before different Roman officials. And we're going to be making our way through these in the next few weeks. It'll be interesting to see at each turn what Paul has to say. So let's find out what he says here. Acts 24.1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came up to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead... That I am on trial before you this day. Well, if we thought that Paul was going to take up a different message. Because he has a different audience. We would be wrong. If there is any truth to be discussed around this case. Paul says it's not the evidence. Because there is none. It is the reality of the resurrection. Again. And yet the tone of this trial. Does seem different than the one before it. There's a kind of uh, even handedness different than the last two in Jerusalem. The proceedings seem more civil, more reasoned, more intent on getting at the truth. You know, God's common grace in societies that allow for civil discourse and due process, even when the authorities themselves don't accept his special grace of salvation, shows up. In things like Supreme Courts and Civil magistrates and a right to appeal. We experience all those things in our country and we can be thankful. Though we may not ultimately be able to keep our country aligned with these ideals indefinitely, we should take every opportunity to be grateful to God for them while we enjoy them. Paul dismantles the argument made by the Jewish prosecutor, Tertullus. He did nothing wrong in the temple. He didn't prompt any riotous behavior. And he points out that the prosecution doesn't even have a single eyewitness to corroborate the charge. Again, the servant of the Lord is innocent. And yet, strangely, he is the one under scrutiny and threat. In that way, Paul's final trial, as we saw last week, will continue to mirror that of his Lord Jesus Christ. Who is led as a spotless lamb to the slaughter? It is a hard thing to understand why God, who is just, allows human injustice to prevail at cost to those who are innocent. I don't need to list all the ways this happens in our world right now for you to know what I'm talking about. We see it everywhere. People sentenced to death penalties who didn't do the crime. Children who suffer due to wicked people. Employees who wrongfully lose their jobs because their employers are covering up their own misdeeds. I don't claim if you have gone through any of these things or have loved ones who are in these things. I do not stand here and claim to know all God's thought processes or his purposes in all these things. But I do know what you know. I do know what we have revealed in scripture. I do know Joseph in Genesis was sold into slavery, wrongfully imprisoned, forgotten by those he helped go free. And then one day he's exalted to the highest position in Egypt. His testimony before his brothers who had so wronged him went this way. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I do know that Jesus, and you know too, that he was tried and crucified without a single charge that stuck. He himself, having done nothing wrong, not even uttering a single sinful word during the whole charade of the trial he endured. And then three days after he died, he was raised up. He was exalted from death into life. And a few weeks weeks after that, he was exalted into the highest position that is. At the right hand of God. And from there, he orchestrated for the news about his salvation to spread to the ends of the earth. Even to us this morning. Jesus' killers meant evil against him. But if you're a believer, you know that God meant it for your good. To bring it about that many people, including you and me, should be kept alive, even as we are today. We may not always know the purposes God has, but we know God. So when you see injustice against the innocent, remember Joseph, remember Jesus. What men mean for evil, our good and powerful God can superintend for good. God's purposes aren't always hidden from us. In fact, if you want more clarity about how and why God does what he does, read the Bible. That's actually part of the reason why it's given to us. So we can know him and his ways. Follow Paul's trial here. Notice how God is working here. The trial keeps mysteriously running, but there's no gas in the tank. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. There's no wrongdoing. And yet we have several more chapters of this. Why do you think God would allow that? Well, the Bible reveals God's purpose in placing Paul in an unjust trial. Look at chapter twenty-four, verse twenty-two. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case." And he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, in God's providence, he seems less concerned that a human trial gets won. And more intent that people who are dying and going to hell like Felix hear about salvation in Jesus Christ. God is working now to win souls. Later, he will deal with his enemies. A historian from around this time tells us that Felix was actually a slave at one point. But through family connections, he ends up in this position of power. power. But he continues to be impetuous and cruel and slavish to his passions. He was especially cruel in squashing Jewish riots of all things. So Paul could have decided to do everything he could with this brief audience with the ruler to show Felix that he wasn't that person. He wasn't a rabble rouser. So Paul gets a private audience with the one man who can decide his fate. And what strategy does Paul take? Does he seek to appease governor Felix? No. He brings him a bold message about King Jesus. He tells the Gentile Felix and the Jewish wife Drusilla the gospel. He tells them what they need to hear. What we need to hear. That the righteous God... Sits enthroned in heaven who made us. He made us and created us to worship him. And though we might feel like our passions and desires to sin that we have fallen into cannot be controlled. They are still sin before God. And we without his rescue are slaves. If we're going to live, we must live according to God's law. Not our own. No matter how powerful we might think of ourselves. Or how powerful other people might think of us. God calls us to control our sin, put it to death, live for him completely. And if we don't, or if we won't, or if we can't, then a day is coming when Jesus the judge will come down from his seat in heaven and judge us for every single thought, word, and deed we've done in violation of God's laws. His judgment will level us all, poor and rich, powerful and weak, kings and kingdoms, And like Felix, who goes right back to his slavish ways, we cannot change who we are on our own. Slaves do not go free without someone intervening. Hearts don't get clean without someone else replacing them and cleansing them. We need Jesus to shed his blood and wash away our sins. We need a lamb to be crucified. We need a God to act to get us out of the grave of death. We need a king's resurrection. We need to put our total trust and faith in Jesus Christ and to keep on believing. The job of Christ's messenger, like you are and I am as his, his follower, is to deliver faithfully the message, the whole message. That's what Paul does. Paul does not skirt the matter of sin because he knows Felix can do him harm or good. Paul doesn't hold back from talking about God's judgment when Drusilla's opinion of him might determine what judgment he receives from Rome. So in our testifying to Jesus, remember that what God thinks about what we're saying is far more important than what the person we are talking to thinks. God puts us in people's lives to provoke them to think about eternity if they're not. To do that, we will need to tell them that a judge is coming to deal with our sin. And thankfully, if they listen to that, then we pray. They'll also have ears to hear that the judge who took, who comes to tell us about judgment also took our judgment on himself at the cross. So that we might become righteous. The job of those who hear this message is to respond in repentance. And Felix can't quite get there. Perhaps he and Drusilla did later, but at this moment he waits. He assumes there's going to be another day that he can think it over. And in God's grace, Felix got another day. And if you're not walking with Christ and under his judgment right now, you might get another day. But that's not promised. Sadly, Felix also allowed his passions, his passions especially to get a little money, to distract him from the opportunity to get eternal life. In our hearts, a little excuse to serve ourselves first may become the big, biggest obstacle to us serving Jesus in the end. Make sure you're not waiting to get yours before you give God what is rightfully His. Does God get the better portion of our love? Do others get the rest? Does God get the offering of the first fruits of our money? And do others receive the overflow of our generosity? I think in many ways he is. As I watch you gladly and joyfully serving him. Praise God that he's promoting in your hearts to do that. But if he by his spirit is prompting you to think of ways you're not. Give those over to him. This week, in any situation where the choice is in front of us to serve God or serve ourselves, what do we need to do? Believe Jesus Christ first. Believe him instead of believing promises that sound like his but don't come from him. Believe that Christ has all that you need. You don't need to set apart some for yourself. Believe his providence guides you where you need to go. You don't need to make alternate plans. Believe he plans for your protection when your trust is in him, and even when you feel vulnerable, he's got you. Believe that when we lose our lives and giving them into the care of the Lord, that is when we receive his life coming into us like a vine that supports us as branches. God promises that when we give him our lives, he will use them like he uses Paul's. The Jewish conspirators demonstrate that God will even use our lives if we rebel against him. We don't want to be tools of judgment. We want to be instruments of God's grace. Like Paul. So from this point on, Paul will remain under house arrest or some kind of arrest for two years. With very limited freedoms to live his life. Earlier this year, I sat in a room and listened to a man tell about his experience of being wrongly convicted to 37 years of prison for a murder he didn't commit. And after 37 years, he was finally exonerated and released. And I heard this man praise God for saving him in prison. I heard the Holy Spirit produce words that came out of his mouth that he didn't hate his accusers or hate God. But he counted it a privilege to serve Jesus by bringing the gospel to his prison mates. I cannot remember myself ever hearing a more powerful Christian testimony than the one that came from him that day. That is how Paul thinks about this whole so-called trial. He knows he isn't really on trial with the person whose opinion of him matters. Because God and before him, Paul's clear. He's cleared of sin because of his righteous savior. His conscience is clear because he's walking in alignment with God. But there are people like high priest hypocrites and murdering mobs and greedy governors who are not cleared. Who must hear that Jesus and only Jesus can clear the guilty and raise the dead. It is likely that Paul's two-year imprisonment results in the production of a big part of the New Testament. The letter to the Romans that tells us of God's great salvation plan, he likely wrote in this time. The letter to the Philippians, which disciples us into true joy in Christ, no matter our circumstances, during this time. And the second letter to Timothy, which guards and guides the church in times of trial. Not to mention the limitless souls that have been won through Paul's personal witness in prison. And the ones who have come to Christ through his writings. All of it produced in a trial of two years. If God can do all this through the unjust trial of his son and his messenger. Through murderous plots that took the life of Jesus and threatened Paul's. And corrupt rulers who sentenced Jesus to death and Paul to prison. Can we not expect that he can and will work through our trials. For the furtherance of his gospel. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your providence and your power and your heart for the lost and your ability to protect us when we undergo trial. We marvel at the drawing near that you do for Paul and for us to comfort us when you know that we are in the midst of things that would otherwise overwhelm us. We marvel that you became man for us, that you offer a dwelling to be made with you through your son. We are left in praise again at the opening of your word. And we are left with reminders, each of us, of how you would have us walk with you. Press those on our hearts. Press us to the point of belief and obedience. And press us through life, even through life's trials outward. To be the messengers who carry news of a resurrected king who can release slaves from anything. Use us for your glory and your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.